Listeners, I want to talk to you today about Gaia GPS. I love Gaia GPS. This past weekend, I went hiking with my wife and our child outside of Salida, Colorado, and I was in an area that had really bad cell reception, but I didn't worry because I had downloaded our route to my Gaia GPS app, and throughout our hike, I knew exactly where I was and my distance to like water stops, campgrounds, other trails, and most importantly, back to the car. And we made it, we had a great time, and I had the peace of mind of knowing exactly where I was. Now, as you know, premium account with GPS is included in the Outside Plus bundle. And right now, you can get a 12-month subscription to Outside Plus for $8.25 a month. And that gets you access to stuff like Gaia GPS, coaching advice from today's plan, event discounts from Roll Massif, a subscription to Outside Magazine, a subscription to Velo News Magazine, two Velo Press books, and the list goes on and on. You can learn more, of course, by going to velonews.com forward slash outside plus and now i'm going to navigate you on to today's podcast venga 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 Velo news podcast returns this week fred dreyer coming to you busy tuesday here in the home offices where we are up to our eyeballs in jamon and vuelta espana because uh today stage 10 we saw some crazy stuff at the Welta, and we're going to get into it on today's podcast. Uh, second half of the show, I have an interview with Ian Boswell, uh, all about his return to gravel racing and the success that he's had and how uh, winning stuff like Unbound Gravel and Belgian Waffle Ride has opened the doors for him, actually, to return to pro cycling and how that's something he's actually wrestling with because um, Boswell's winning these big races, but he's still like a full-time employee. He's working for... Wahoo, and um, he finds himself at this interesting crossroads in his career. So thanks to Ian Boswell for sitting down with me. But before we get to that, we need to talk about some of the big uh, storylines coming out of the Welta. And joining me, my co-host, Andrew Hood, looks like he's coming to me from like a buffet somewhere in the wilds of Spain. Andy, set the scene for us. Where where are you? What's going on? Well, I left behind the glamour of Spain's Costa del Sol, and I'm halfway in between the start of tomorrow's stage and, and, and today's finish. Uh, you know, sometimes going into, the, into Malaga, you know, one of my favorite cities in Spain, we're just trying to go in there for the night, parking, getting in and out of there, going into the next day stage. It's just too much of a hassle. So I found like this nice little roadhouse, Spanish roadhouse. Yeah. And uh, I'm in the bar here. So if you hear some clinking and clanking, it's not my beer glass. That's uh, just the bar. Yeah, sure, Andy. Sure. None of the listeners believe you. You are obviously in Spanish roadhouse emptying cerveza after cerveza. Yeah. Apologies if the audio quality is not up to its usual impeccable standard here on the Villain News podcast, but we are working with the man on the road. Um, you said you're in a Spanish roadhouse. I mean, is it going to be – will there be scenes there like the, from the uh, classic 80s movie Roadhouse with people karate kicking each other and uh, punching each other out of windows? you see Patrick Swayze beating anyone in this roadhouse? No, Patrick Swayze. You know, we did – we were in Chavernas a few days ago where they had uh, all the Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. That was a little bit further east of here. You know, quite famous uh, part of Spain where they shot all the movies there back in the 60s and 70s. But uh, this is, uh, they got some nice hamon over here. I'm, I'm eyeing up that. I'll be having that later on as soon as we finish this call, a little hamon with uh, hamon serrano with some queso manchego and some Rioja wine. And we'll slip that all into the Velo News expense account. Ah, I love it. I will be monitoring that expense account just to see how many dump launches and uh, Riojas are on that list. Uh, hoodie. 
Let's talk to, let's talk about it. Today we're we're recording this shortly after stage 10 which finished to Rincon de la Victoria, thrilling stage, breakaway, stays away. Uh the red jersey changes hands and is now on the backs of odd Christian Anderson, the man with one of the best names in cycling. Odd. Love that guy. But really the story behind uh, the story of the day happened behind, which is that uh, Primoz Roglic decides to go on this pretty long-range, daring um, roll-of-the-dice attack and ends up breaking away but then crashing on the descent. He was okay, but there's been a lot of chatter in the cycling scene about this attack, whether – like why he did it what advantage he got from it and whether it was, you know, sort of wasted effort. I think up until this point, he's ridden a very collected and smart race. And this was sort of the first moment where we've been like, whoa, what is this guy doing? Um, You were at the finish and talking to people and uh, soaking it all in. What sense did you get from people at the Welta about this attack? Yeah, I think this move today, Fred, had a lot of people scratching their heads. Um, People were asking, you know, what the heck was he doing? He didn't, he didn't have to attack. This was not an uphill finale. This was a cat two climb, very steep, very one of these kind of short, steep climbs. He sustained. It was a good seven, eight K climb. So plenty of room to make a difference. And obviously when he uncorked his, his acceleration, he dropped everybody, had everybody, all the GC guys on the ropes. Um, but what, what happened was, of course, the stage didn't finish at the top of the mountain. Very steep technical descent. And then a couple of Ks of flats at the finish line down here at the beach. And, um, you know, I mean, tomorrow's stage, when you look at tomorrow's stage, uh, Valdepeña's the high end. That is a stage that's perfect for uh, Roglic because it ends at the top of basically a wall, 24% wall there at the end of this real short, steep, punchy climb. Now, you know, what he did today, he should be doing that tomorrow. And talking to Sam Oman at the finish line, he was telling journalists there that, you know, this was not part of the team's tactical play. Sam said that Roglic cooked this up himself on the road today. He decided, man, I feel great. Uh, my rivals don't look so good. I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. But very risky move. I was thinking that, uh, man, it's like you're risking the entire world in, in this kind of cagey move. I mean, yeah, if you pull it off and you get 20 seconds, great. Because, you know, when you look at the GC, it's still quite tightly packed in them. Uh, Enrique Moss is still less, less than a half minute behind him. So maybe he was getting nervous about that. You know, we don't know. Uh, he only spoke briefly at the, at the mix zone. And the way it is now, you know, we can't go talk to the team sport directors to figure out what's going on because of the COVID limitations. But everyone was just kind of wondering, you know, why the hell did he do it? Because speaking to the uh, uh, movie star writers, you know, they're Spanish writers. They know these roads in Spain. And they all said, we knew that descent was going to be very treacherous. So Primo's Roglic got very lucky today. Yeah, it's interesting. Whenever I see Roglic do curious things like this, I'm reminded of the column I wrote earlier this year after Perry Nice, which is, you know, in the last 12 months, we've seen Roglic, um, you know, look and control of three different stage races and then lose them because of, I wouldn't say blunders, but just lose them in sort of dramatic fashion. That being the Criterium du Dauphiné, which he was killing everybody. And then he crashed and had to abandon the Tour de France, where he was killing everyone look to be in complete control, loses in that final time trial. And then Perry Nice, where he is like toying with his rivals. I mean, he is just like utterly the strongest guy there by leaps and bounds and then crashes on this final day twice, loses contention and uh, loses the overall to Max Schachman. And it's sort of like, boy, one of those 
you know, one of those disasters in a calendar year and, and you're kind of talking about it and chalking it up to like, wow, man, that's a bummer. Two of them, it's like, wow, terrible luck. How could that happen twice? Lightning strike twice. But three of them, you look at it and it's like, maybe there's something wrong here. Like, you know, questionable decision making or, um, you know, someone who kind of falters under pressure. I'm not saying that's the case of what's going to happen in this Welta. But whenever I see curious stuff like that, I'm reminded of this. And, and maybe that is part of the Roglic mentality of thinking, I don't have enough, you know, like I seem to be in control. It looks like I'm the strongest guy, but I keep needing to push it because I've been in situations like this before where like a touch of wheels or, you know, supreme confidence heading into a time trial and like the whole thing is thrown on its head. So there's part of me that wonders if like these three calamities in the same calendar year have changed his mentality towards racing. So he's willing to, you know, if an opportunity presents itself, even if it's a risky one, he's absolutely going to take it to try and pad his advantage because like anything can happen. Um, I, I, what do you make of that? Yeah, I would, I would add to that list uh, the 2019 Giro because remember there, you know, he, he was guns ablazing in the first half of that Giro and the wheels kind of came off and he ended up finishing third. Uh, you know, you know, very solid result. It kind of, you know, marked his entree really as as a Grand Tour, legitimate Grand Tour contender. But remember that day, you know, had that had to crash that one stage, and his his team car was way back because they had stopped to go for a pee. You know, it was like these little details that just added up to a disaster that day. Uh, he ended up getting the podium, but you know, that was a race that Pogacar was really looking to possibly win. But there's there's a sensation, and I think it must be in the back of Roglic's mind. There is the feeling within the peloton when you when you talk to the sport directors you know on the side you know when you can't talk to them they, there's a there's a, a certain belief you know maybe it's not true but they think that you know Roglic, you know if the stage race is two and a half weeks long he'll win every time if it's two weeks long 10 days he wins every time it's that third week you know the end of that third week we have seen we have seen Roglic, you know really kind of fall apart you know the tour de france last year is the best example of that and, um, you know, even last year's Welta, remember, you know, Carapaz, you know, went after him on that last climb uh, and had that climb been like a kilometer longer and had Mobistar now piled on and helped the uh, Roglic's that day. You know, they said they were racing for their own race, but, it, you know, were, was Mobistar like chasing down Carapaz because, you know, he dumped them to join Ineos. Um, so there's all these different things you know, happening in these races all at the same time. Um, but there is the kind of belief out there. It's like, you know, with Roglic, does he have like this third week, weak spot that all the teams are waiting to exploit? And right now, in pole position is movie star. Mm, interesting. Well, luckily, in pole position is movie star because no team has snatched defeat from the jaws of victory so many times as uh, our good friends over at movie star. But I, hey, I, I am hoping for them. Miguel Angel Lopez and Enric Mas up there, like two exciting, explosive riders. They absolutely could do something. Um, in that final week, if they get the opportunity, Hoodie, um, what do you make of uh, Guillaume Martin? He has now he was in that breakaway. He has now leapfrogged from way down in GC to second place overall. Um, what do you make of his chances of red jersey podium doing well in this Welta? I don't see. I see. I don't see it. I see him leapfrogging backwards just as, just as quickly. Uh, honestly, uh, you know, he's been saying that you know he's here hunting for stages. And you know the tour was his peak, and you can see kind of the gas running out of, of his legs. I mean, he's a steady rider, um, but I just don't see him being able to have 
the legs to really go deep into. I mean, the third week of the wealth, when you look at it, the more you look at it, the more brutal it looks. It really does. And I've been talking to guys in the mix and they're all the same. And everyone's on their knees already. It's only day 10. There's 10 more days to go. Because the heat has been, I mean, the heat has been brutal during this. It hasn't been the heat wave that everyone was hyping up. You know, the temperatures haven't been in the 40s. But it's been in the mid to upper 30s. You know, it's like mid-90s every day. It's very humid down on the coast. I mean, once we got down to Alicante, for the last five or six days, very humid and muggy. And depending on, you know, where you are in Europe, it's the heat and that humidity really just sucks it out of a lot of riders. And, you know, so many guys say, this, man, people are starting to feel it. You know, the other day, there was a Cat 1 climb opening up the stage. I think it was at, uh, on Saturday. And they were saying the Gruppetto was 100 riders right off, right off the first part of that climb. So that normally does not happen in Grand Tour. So, so the, and then also the wind has been way uh, more of a factor than it seems to be. Because um, I was talking to Kiel Wynan today about the wind. And I said, hey, well, you know, the wind was all hyped up in this Welta, um, but nothing really ever came from it. And in fact, the one day that was supposed to really blow up, there was actually no wind at all. And it staged to Albuquerque uh, last week when – I mean, it blows there every day. That's where they have all the Don Quixote windmills. And that day, there was actually no wind. And when it did kick up finally that afternoon, it was a headwind. Um, but he was basically saying that the wind's been blowing every day. There's tension in the bunch. He said that the one reason why the, 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 the uh, wind hasn't really played out in the race is because he said that all the teams have been keeping the GC guys in the front. So, you know, if they're all there, there's no reason really to pour it off. So it's only when you know, the bunch gets split out and you get a guy off the back. That's when the guys at the front really go all in. So he said that scenario hasn't unfolded. He said, you know, there's going to be wind during the entire world. It's still going to be a factor. Um, but, I mean, people are on their knees already, man, stage, stage 10. It's like we've got nine, ten more days to go. Uh, Eddie, we came into this race really hyping the Roglic versus Egan Bernal battle. Um, Ineos coming into this race with three leaders, with Carapaz, Adam Yates, and Bernal looking really strong. And over the last few days, the whole thing has just completely fallen apart. Stage nine, the finish to uh, the Alto de Villafique, you know, Ineos just got their doors blown off. Today, not looking great at all either. Um, it sounds like Bernal on the rest day, he didn't totally throw in the white towel, but has been making some comments, you know, acknowledging that winning the Welta is going to be very difficult for him. But still, it it's interesting to me because the team continues to ride aggressively. Like, even without having the sort of ace to finish, finish things off, we see them, like, getting the old Skytrain together and tapping out this punishing tempo and trying to drop everyone. And then it sets up these situations where, like, you know, they do all this work and then Bernal isn't able to attack or Yates is able to attack, but he gets brought back and Roglic and Movistar like blow them out of the water. I mean, what are you making about this this interesting sort of mentality that we're seeing with Ineos where they still have the desire and the want to ride like a dominant team, but we just don't have the stars to finish it off? Yeah, I think in this world time, um, what we've seen in the last few days is I think they're, they're just kind of finally realizing, you know, that, that, that especially Carapaz, he lost eight minutes in Belafique. Uh, Bernal lost a minute on the summit there. Uh, Yates wasn't as bad. And then today they both lost 30 seconds, Yates and uh, Bernal. But, you know, the, the summit finished Sunday was really the first big mountain in this wealth. So, you know, they didn't know yet. They wanted to test Yumbo. They, you know, they said they drove hard that pace on Sunday. They wanted to lose a few of the Yumbo riders. 
because uh, Yates, we were talking to Yates yesterday on Sunday, and he was saying that on Monday, he was saying that, you know, we have seen uh, Roglic isolated at some of these other climbing stages. So he thought, well, you know, that's the way you do it. You go hard, you, you isolate Roglic, and then if you got the legs, you go. Um, but Yumbo had a great day on Sunday. You know, Seth has been there. Uh, some of the other writers were, were there with uh, Roglic, and then Roglic, you know, he's just had the he has the best legs in the race right now. And Roglic too was uh, I've been saying every day. I said, like, oh, I'm really surprised I'm climbing as well as I am, because he said after he finished the tour, after he crashed out of the tour in that first week, he said he trained exclusively for the Tantra. The Tantra was his goal at the Olympics. So he said he didn't really do a lot of training for climbing. You know, he had the form, of course, his tour form was still there. But he said he focused all of his efforts and training specifically on time trialing. So, of course, paid off with the gold medal. So he came into this welter not really knowing how well he was going to be able to climb. So perhaps that explains a little bit of what happened in today's stage, that he, he's he been going so much better than he expected in these climbs so far in the welter. Because every day at the finish line, he's like, going, well, I'm like climbing way better than I thought I would be in this welter. And then so I think just today he got carried away and just said, I feel great. I'm going to go for it. And then goes down uh, on the back side of that cat to climb and just overcoops the corner. And what's what's interesting about down here in southern Spain, these roads are notorious in Spain within Spanish cycling down here. You know, it's August. You know, the wealth used to be when it was in September, it was even worse. It hasn't rained here in months. The rainy seasons, kind of typhoon, almost monsoon. That's all in the winter. Winter and the spring to get the rains. So it hasn't rained down here in Malaga for weeks, maybe even months. So the roads here are just all gunked up, you know. Uh, even these kind of uh, secondary roads in Spain, there's villages up there, so you got trucks, cars, motorbikes, you know, stuff going up and down these roads, big buses. So it's just full of uh, dust. It's full of uh, motor oil, just urban gunk on these roads, plus a lot of dust, plus even olive oil, because, you know, it goes past these olive oil groves, and that stuff blows out on the roads. And the roads are sketchy. In fact, today we were going, trying to get ahead of the race, leaving from the start, taking some back roads. And I overcooked a, a corner to some one of these roads to look this. They call it Mar de Plastico. It's all these, uh, uh, you know, greenhouses, these plastic covered uh, huts where they have just tens of thousands of acres of these things. And we're just blasting through there trying to get ahead of the race. And I overcooked a corner. I just almost flew off the road because the road was just like ice. So that's what happened today to Roglic. And uh, the Spanish guys knew, and they and they rode down that rode down that descent, and they're way way more cautious. Yeah, I mean, what do you make then about uh, Ineos and the strategy going forward? Do you here's a question: Do you think that the riders are still looking at this uh, Alto do Alto de Gamontairu as like kind of keeping it in the back of their minds, or are we seeing everyone firing at their full capabilities right now? Is like, are people holding back at all, or what we seeing right now is like? the expression of everyone's strongest ability on the, uh, on these climbs. Yeah, I mean, at the Welta, you don't see anybody holding the back of the Welta. I mean, you can't. I mean, they're so they're so steep and so explosive that if you're trying to pace yourself, you're going to be losing losing uh, time. And that's what Bernal said. Uh, we talked to him on Monday, and he was saying that, uh, you know, my power numbers aren't bad. I'm feeling pretty good in the Welta because I can't do the accelerations. Because that's what happened to him on Belafique is when the accelerations would go from Lopez or Roglic, you know, normally we'd hit, hit out the legs to bridge up to those guys and get back on the wheel. And he said in the last two or three Ks, I had to ride that climb alone in the wind. It makes a big difference. They ended up losing a minute. But um, Bernal was telling us that, you know, he, he's not nearly in the top form he was at the, at the Giro. Giro was his primary goal for 2021. He won that. And the idea was, you know, let's do the back end of the season, Olympics and uh, and win the Welta, 
And of course he got COVID. Now the big rumor now going around the Welter is like, when did, when did Bernal get COVID? Uh, did he actually get it during the Welter? Was he sick already at the back end, back end of that Giro? Excuse me, not the Welter, the, the Giro. Because remember, you know, he goes, oh, I got COVID like the day after winning the Giro. And everyone was kind of wondering, like, maybe he had, had maybe he had, uh, this is just all rumor and speculation. You know, there's no, there's no facts backing this up. <laughs> but it's like, when did, when did Bernal get sick? Because, you know, maybe he was already sick at that last week of that uh, Giro because you saw him kind of like struggling a few days there. But anyway, he said that his whole experience coming out of the Giro with COVID really kind of screwed up his preparation coming into the Welta. But he was very philosophical. He's like saying, look, this is my first Welta. I won the Giro. You know, I won the Tour. I'll be able to come back for the Welta. because I'm going to keep racing the Welta. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep riding the Welta because I don't expect to get better. He said that uh, you don't go into a Grand Tour and get better during a Grand Tour. Usually you get worse because it's so demanding. And he said that so far he's really enjoying racing here and he wants to come back and win it. But he basically said he was it's not going to be this year. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the conversation we had before the race started, which is one of the beautiful things about the Welta is that it is a test, not just of legs and lungs, but also like of, of motivation and spirit because it's at the end of the year. There's some guys who have a ton to prove, like Roglic. You know, he missed the tour. Uh, this is his opportunity to win a, win a grand tour, make some history, you know, really capitalize on a season. And you got someone like uh, Bernal where he's won the Giro already. So, of course, he wants to win and, you know, to, depending on what form he is in. But at some point it does kind of come down to like, how motivated are you? How much do you need it? How much do you really need and want that victory? And, uh, you know, sort of that, that second summit stage three summit finish to Picon Blanco was sort of a sign of that too, of like, boy, who, you know, you've got to really want it to go that hard on that steep of a climb that early in the Welta. And it, it shook a lot of people out. Uh, well, we have this mountainous, you know, second part of this race coming up. And so uh, I definitely, you know, continue to follow this race listeners on VeloNews.com because it's far from over. And, you know, Roglic, we've seen this time and again, he looks, he's the strongest guy, looks like he's in command. And then, you know, there's all, all bets are off. So uh, we're going to definitely going to continue to follow this thing over the next few stages. Yeah. Talking about desire and who wants it. And you really look, you really look at Movistar and, you know, people like to laugh at them and they kind of deride their tactics sometimes. And, yeah, it's true. I mean, they brought these three three liter prong tactics and it's misfired, you know, wonderfully displayed on Netflix documentaries. But, you know, this Welta, it's different because you have Enrique Mas, who's kind of the new leader. They brought him in last year. Uh, you have uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, Mal, Superman. You know, he's, the, he's coming in as a new leader. You know, all the old guys are going. Uh, Valverde crashed out. They also have different sports directors here this week. They have, this, this month they have uh, Pachi Vila, who used to be uh, Sagan's coach, and Pablo Lastras, whom, uh, you know, they're in the team cars now. It's not some of the sports directors that have been with the Movistar for the last four, five, six years. So there's a different kind of vibe around that bus. And when you talk about desire, it's like Enrique Mossman. He wants to win this. Um I think Roglic is going to outclass him in the time trial. So I expect them just to go all in on these climbs and try to gap Roglic. So maybe that's maybe that was in the back of Roglic's mind too. It's like he knows these guys are going to come at him uh, in this next uh, half of this Welta. Can't wait to see what happens. Well, Andrew Hood, we will continue to read your stuff. And uh, thank you again for co-hosting this episode of the podcast. We're going to let you get back to the roadhouse there. It seems like maybe some of the attendants there are trying to kick you out or are the servers trying to like uh, boot you out of this place. What is going on there? 
Well, I am getting nervous that I won't be able to have dinner, but it's Spain, you know, so we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. <laughs> I hear like clanking dishes, and I was wondering maybe if some like frustrated busboy was like coming over to you and just like banging some plates on the table uh, as sort of like a, you know, nudge, nudge, beat it, pal. You know, pooper, get off the toilet, pal. <laughs> well, it was nice talking to you, Fred. I'm going to go uh, jump into some dinner here, back. So, uh, Talk to you soon. All right. Let's hear from Ian Boswell. Okay. Now on the podcast, it is a returning guest on the Villain News podcast, Ian Boswell, your winner of Unbound Gravel, world tour veteran, retired. What else? Can, how else can we uh, classify you, Ian? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Freckle, freckles. I don't know. Man with freckles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Oregonian, now live in Vermont. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Many, uh, many different titles. And We are recording this the day before uh, Belgian Waffle Ride. You're out here to race Belgian Waffle Ride. Uh, by the time listeners listen to this, they will know the result. But we're not going to talk about Belgian Waffle Ride, Ian. I want to talk to you about um, what your life has been like since winning Unbound Gravel. Because, you know, a year or so ago when you came on the podcast and we talked about your decision to retire from world tour cycling and getting to gravel. It was very much this, you know, I actually have a day job type thing. I am working for Wahoo, looking at spreadsheets. Yes, I'm going to ride my bike and I'm going to go do events, but like that's not really what I do anymore. And now in the last few months, you've won Unbound Gravel, the, the Super Bowl of gravel racing. And I'm curious if there are doors opening for you to become a full-time pro cyclist again and where where you are with that yeah well first off thanks for pulling me out of the expo um, so we actually able to get into some shade and get some lunch and yeah off my feet um but yeah i mean i guess i entered gravel kind of racing and, and this whole transition going from being a world tour rider to then you know taking a, a full-time position at wahoo and participating in races it came at a very unique time in the sense that you know we met it was old man winter and it was february and you know i was like still very unsure of like what gravel racing is about and that race was anything but a race because you know, it got canceled and it was snowy and then the pandemic happened so i spent a whole year of not not racing at all and you know that allowed me to like kind of accept where i was just as far as like you know being done with pro road racing you know because road racing came back on tv you know but mo most gravel events didn't happen so kind of like very much taking maybe a further step back from where i was in 2020 like okay like you know because we weren't going to events i wasn't you know helping out with expos and, and traveling i was like okay well like so i got more put on my plate just with with work which is completely fair because i was you know just hanging out in vermont um but i guess in a way maybe i rediscovered like riding in a different a different way you know and not you know not training as much as riding and you know riding with people once once it was safe to do so um but yeah then winning unbound definitely has opened doors of like an opportunity to go back to being a full-time racer and i still very much haven't made any decision i don't know what i'm gonna do um you know i feel personally like it was and i think any athlete would probably attest to this especially someone in my situation who's like 30 years old i retired you know theoretically i could have kept racing you know, Valverde is what 40 like 10 more years if you wanted to um you know so mentally it was like a transition to get to where i am now or you know where i have been just like accepting that hey you're no longer a professional road racer you know you've had this awesome opportunity to race and travel the world and you know really live a childhood dream and then you know kind of transitioning it's like okay i'm working like that's my priority you know especially during the pandemic you know my wife and i got a dog our gardens got bigger you know like my wife's 
you know, going to give birth to our first child in end of December. Um, so all these life things happen. You know, I joined the volunteer fire department because I was just home all the time. I was like, I needed something to like fill, you know, fill my time, which I loved. And I very much settled into that. And then, you know, I went to the rule of three in, into March, into May. And I was like, cool. It's like a weekend trip back. And then I went to unbound and I was there for longer. But then since then, it's just been probably more attention and media than I'd ever experienced in the world tour, you know, just with, you know, podcasts and interviews and questions about, you know, the bike and your training and your setup. And, um, so it's, it's, yeah, the whole thing is just kind of perplexing from where I was even 12 months ago, you know, look at two years ago to 12 months ago now to where I am now. Um, yeah, it's just been a, it's been a journey and I don't know what the next 12 months hold, but it has been also this really an eye-opening kind of experience of what American racing has become in a sense, you know, and I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what is kind of the, the new age American pro. Um, and yeah, there's still, I think a lot of us are still very much figuring out kind of what that, what that does look like. Well, and the interesting angle of that is that, you know, we've documented winners of Unbound over the last few years and what happens to them afterwards you know ted king was very much in this model of hey he's retired he's sort of a brand ambassador goes and does these gravel events and wins them and does well and all of a sudden you know winning unbounded winning it again and this is happening as the race's profile is rising and all of a sudden he's like oh my gosh i'm like a pro cyclist again i am getting paid i have contracts that have you know incentives baked into them and i'm racing and training to win these events you know Colin Strickland like winning Unbound transforms him into this gravel celebrity you know all of a sudden brands want a piece of him he can you know pay his mortgage and do everything he wants to as a pro cyclist this very non-traditional path and so I was wondering about that with you which is like you must are you must right now be wrestling with some some just internal discussions about what your future is going to look like and whether you're going to still be this like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time day job guy and I, I race, you know, and I'm training and doing these events or whether you want to jump back into full-time training and intervals and long days on the bike and like wanting to take these races seriously. Yeah. I mean, and not to say that I don't take them seriously. Like, you know, I'm still like asking Pete and Colin and like, Hey, what tires are you using? Or, you know, I'm still, you still want to do as best as you can. Um, but I don't know. It's unique in the sense that, like I said, I did go through this transition of like, cool, like, it doesn't matter if I win or lose. It doesn't, you know, whether it's, you know, Wahoo or, you know, Specialized, no one's like, hey, you need to win. I don't have like performance bonuses because, you know, I'm not, wasn't anticipating on performing. You know, of course I knew I might do okay, but just not knowing the level of what the other athletes were going to be. And I think that was the biggest unknown. Um, but it's, it's hard to say going forward, you know, and I guess I've done a few things, you know, I've, I've seen them now, you know, just like, other ways in which to give back to cycling. I feel like, and I spoke to Payson about this, to be at the highest level of sport, which, you know, Payson has been at and myself and so many athletes, you have to be very selfish and you take a lot from the sport of cycling, whether it's, you know, race event promoters giving you free entry or sponsors or, you know, time away from fame. Like you take a lot from a lot of people. And I guess whatever I do, I would just want to make sure that I kind of stick to what I've found this year is like giving back, you know, even, you know, at Unbound having that transgender you know, sweatband on and seeing like just, you know, buying that online and wearing it at the race and now seeing this, I don't say a movement, but like people wearing them at road nationals and like, you know, and I'm like almost like stepped away, not stepped away from it now, but like it's just taken on its life of its own and Molly Cameron's doing an awesome job of that. And like seeing the influence I can have on, you know, whether it's different groups of people and like, you know, I was just over in Kenya, something similar with the African riders over there. 
you know, that all of a sudden becomes much more powerful to me that I, you know, have made the sacrifices and, you know, been selfish and got to a level of, you know, whether it's notoriety or, you know, just recognition that you have a voice, but then to be able to like share that with other people. I think that if opportunity came, and, and there is that with Wahoo, you know, with, you know, going to events and also with, you know, what we're doing with the Imani Foundation to give back and give other people opportunities like that, for whatever reason now, is like so much more powerful to me than, you know, just winning a race. Um, yeah, and that's something that's all kind of come recently. And I guess seeing how cycling has changed and improved my life, it's like if I can help give other people that opportunity, like how cool, how cool is that? And so, you know, I am... You know, since Unbound, yeah, a lot of, you know, brands and teams and, you know, other folks have said, like, hey, like, what are you doing next year? Can we can we sponsor you? Can we figure it out? Um, and I keep just kind of delaying things because I, I have just too, much, too many other things going on to, to really think about it. And I don't have an agent or anything like that. Um, but trying to find a way that I can make kind of everything that I am doing work. You know, I still do enjoy, you know, my work at Wahoo. I do enjoy, you know, I've gained so many skills. And, like, I feel like I'm continually gaining skills that are beneficial for the rest of my life but if there's a way to incorporate then or i guess continue that with racing and with you know maybe some other partners like hey we want to partner with you but we also want to do some other cool projects like if we can create something that's just more holistic i think that's probably what i would like to pursue but like you know speaking to pete and colin and you know this is the, probably the two folks i speak to most like it takes a lot of work to organize you know your own race program and travel and, and all that kind of stuff um and like I said, I have a baby on the way, so do I really want to be gone? You know, Pete's going straight from here to Iceland and then, you know, back to a race and then up to Canada. And I'm like, I don't really want to be gone, you know, five months out of the year. And even this summer, you know, I live in Vermont because the summers are great and I haven't been there at all <laughs> this summer yet. And I've only done two races. So, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that's a lot on your plate and that's a lot to take into effect. I didn't know that you were becoming a dad. Congratulations. As a dad of a two-year-old, um, you are in for some very fun and rewarding and frustrating yeah. and interesting times. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something to weigh into that if you want to be on the road that entire time. I mean, I would assume earning ability like weighs into it too. I mean, you know, we are now at a point with the privateer movement and the gravel movement where like top gravel racers, I mean, if you can structure things right with sponsorships and deals like you can make a pretty good living at it um but you know then there's then there's expectation and then there's yeah. pressure yeah and there's expectation there's also the whole like social media side of it and content side of it um which is great and i have an instagram i you know post pictures and, and all that but is it yeah i mean i guess it's still so much there's so much that goes into it and structuring it and it is i mean it is a full-time job for these athletes that are pursuing you know, a full-time gravel career, you know, they're, they're doing as much off the bike as they are on the bike. Um, but I, don't know, I guess I try to consider the longevity of that as well. You know, I have a position now that I could probably keep working on, you know, or at for an extended period of time. And, you know, let's say you went back to full-time racing, you know, where do you find yourself in two years? You find myself like knocking on the door of Wahoo again, like, Hey guys, like, can I get my job back? Um, you know, and they've been incredibly flexible with like, you know, allowing me to do racing but also you know working and um so it's been a nice balance but again bringing a child into it, like i have you know kind of two major things at the moment well my wife and our house and all that plus you know racing and and working you know adding three you know a child that's like a whole other department in the in the grocery store and like can you manage all those departments um and i guess time will tell you can probably give me some advice but you don't really know until you know um 
but yeah, I mean, it's just cool to, it's cool to see that this is happening because it is giving so many riders like longevity to their career. Um, and it, it's going to be interesting to see what the younger riders, how they approach this, you know, someone like, you know, Quinn or Mateo or, you know, some of these younger athletes who are focused on the road, but they see this, you know, opportunity now to, to come back to the U S and race. Um, you know, how long is it before it becomes more desirable than trying to pursue a professional road career? And yeah, and I'd mentioned to you before, you know, speaking to some of the, the riders in Europe and the world tour riders, you know, the attention that this gets, I can understand being frustrating to them because, you know, these are athletes who have, you know, pursued this dream to be in a grand tour for their whole life, you know, and it's, it is the pinnacle of the sport, you know, racing in a grand tour, the Tour de France, that's the pinnacle of, you know, kind of human performance on a bike. And, you know, there's riders that are in the middle of the bunch, they're doing a job and they're not getting any recognition because they're just there and they're, they're not winning. And they see, you know, myself and Lawrence and Ted and Pete, like, oh, they're retired, but still racing. And they're like plastered all over the media. Um, Cause I even almost felt that a bit, I guess in 2019, like when Colin won and I, you know, Pete won here in BWR. And it was a bit like, wait, well, how, how is this so big? Because you almost feel so disconnected from it living in Europe. And, you know, there's more athletes now that kind of know what it's about. But there is a, a level of, I don't want to say jealousy, but, you know, it is interesting to see how much attention these events are getting. That said, I would, I agree with you on that. And I've definitely heard that perspective from some people. I would not at all take away from how hard um, the events are over here. I would not like I, I would never assume I used to assume that, oh, some world tour pro who's been training is going to be able to come here and just destroy unbound gravel or whatever. And then you start to realize how specific an effort it is, how specific a skill set and mentality and all these things that go into doing well at the event. And like I have a tremendous I have all the respect in the world for the guys who are getting ready for the Twitter France and really wanting to do well over there. But like. It's it's kind of apples and oranges type of thing. And it is different. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but we stayed at the same place at, at Unbound. And I asked you the night before, I said, is, do you think the pellet or the field at Unbound is stronger than the field at US Pronats, which I think were the following weekend? And my thought at the time was, yes, the field at Unbound is stronger than the field at, at Pronats. And then I won and I was like, no, these are completely different events. And had I and Lawrence and you know, Ted and Pete and Colin gone to Roadnats, like, I don't think one of us would have won because it's such a different event. Um, which is kind of cool, you know, that they are such different categories. You know, they're so similar and like some of the, there's a lot of crossover between the riders who have, have done well on the road and who are doing well on gravel, but as a whole and how you prepare for them and the equipment and the whole kind of, you know, energy behind them, it's so, they're, they are, they're completely different bike events. You know, it's taking me and putting me in, in a crit against Legion, like, no way. <laughs> I would never see the front of the group. Um, which is cool. So, I mean, and I think very much these events are still figuring themselves out. I think also the riders are still very much figuring out how, how to structure, you know, kind of their, their career out of this. Um, and from a brand perspective, and I guess, you know, I do work at Wahoo, you know, I've, I've considered a lot, you know, how do brands approach this? Because, you know, it costs a lot of money and a lot of resources to sponsor a world tour team. And, you know, what's the return on that? It's hard to say, you know, it's not, it's not clear. But you see an event, you know, like this, and you have a couple athletes here, and it's like, are they getting more attention in a, in an area that is more, you know, kind of close to home with people who are actually buying, you know, your product or wanting to be aligned with your brand? Um, 
so it's interesting to see, you know, when I think of, you know, a bike manufacturing and how many bikes do they have to provide to, you know, specialize, how many bikes do they give to Quickstep? 200 bikes a year, you know, I get two bikes a year and like, you know, I was all over cycling media. Um, so, I mean, from a brand's perspective as well, is it more cost effective to partner individuals doing this than, you know, pro teams? Well, I think that speaks to a point that, um, you know, a question I'm really trying to wrap my head around in 2021, which is, what does it mean to be an American professional cyclist in 2021? Uh, uh, an American who earns your living from cycling, pays your bills from cycling, but you race in America. Like, what does that mean? I mean, at Unbound, I was talking to these riders. They're like, yeah, you know, we're doing Unbound, then road crit nats, then, you know, Firecracker 50, mountain bike race. Then, you know, it's sort of this, this new model of individual sponsorships and you know, freedom to do a lot of different racing, but there's also requirements that go along with that that you would never have as a as a road pro 20 years ago, where it's just like train, race, legs up, yeah. that's it. Yeah, I mean, and how do you even define what is pro? You know, I had this conversation with Lawrence in in Kenya um, on his podcast, and he's asking, he's like, oh, you know, we're a pro gravel riders. So I'm like, am I a pro gravel rider? Like, I mean, I, there's no category, and like, what what defines professional? You know, I think in in road racing, it's very clear. It's like you're a you get a pro license. There's no licenses. So like it's pro, you make a living out of it. It's pro, you have product sponsors. Um, but then there's people like Phil Guyman. Like, is he a pro? Like he gets paid to ride his bike. I would say yes. Um, yeah. So I mean that's... Or like the vegan cyclist. Yes, exactly. You know? Same. Yeah. Podcast and influencer and rides his bike and yeah. has sponsorships. And that's great. You know, he's found a way to do it. But like, I would argue that yes, those people are paying their bills from cycling. Yeah. And that puts you know, the new American pros in an interesting position because you're actually, you're competing with each other. You're competing with Phil Guyman. You're competing with Velo News. You're competing with all these different platforms that are media platforms. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's what's changed is the arena in which the races are happening is different. You know, it's no longer on the race course always. It is on social media or on YouTube and, and clicks and views. Um, and it is cool to see that people have been able to like change kind of how they approach it. And like the fact that, you know, Guyman doesn't go to any races, but he's still probably one of the most influential cyclists in the U.S. Um, and, I, and I'm slightly, I don't say conflicted, but it is worrying because I came through this generation of like racing was the avenue to, to the top. Um, and I still think that I would love to see, you know, more young athletes race and, you know, pursue, you know, the Olympics or, you know, World Cups or, you know, the Tour de France. And in a way, like, I don't want to deter from that, like taking away resources for young athletes to to make it to that level, because it is, you know, again, I personally think it's like the pinnacle of, you know, the sport is making it to the Tour de France and there's, there's history and there's legacy. But at the same time, in a way, we are creating this new legacy of racing here in the U.S. that is so different than than European road racing, um, and it's much more inclusive. I mean, the fact that you know t tomorrow here at, at the race, you know, you're going to be on the start line with 4,000 people, and all of a sudden everyone has an opportunity to perform. I think that's one of the biggest kind of revelations of gravel for me, and especially going to that race in, in Kenya, the migration race, is seeing that these athletes don't have to jump through all these hoops of road racing. You know, you think if you want to become a road race, okay, there's a huge barrier of entry, just equipment. But you have, you start off as a Cat 5, and you have to get all the way up to a Cat 1, and then you have to get to a pro team, and then you have to get selected to the right races. And in these events, you can show up and, you know, given you have the equipment and you get an entry and you have an ability within one race to actually show what you're capable of without this, you know, multi-year long process of trying to climb the ladder of road racing, which I think is like 
very cool. And that's, you know, why the Imani team over in Kenya is like pursuing gravel as an avenue for these athletes to get to the top rather than road. Because, you know, they go to Europe and race and, you know, they're in the wrong category or they can't get a start. And, you know, they can come to the U.S. and like, cool, we can do come to the U.S., do three races in three weeks and have the ability to like get as much attention and, you know, ability to show themselves as they would in, in any road race. Well, I mean, it's definitely a changing dynamic that I've been trying to wrap my head around and trying to figure out where it's going to go. And there's just there's so many different avenues it could go down right now. And it's going to be it's going to be cool to see. It's been it's cool to see that American road cycling is or American cycling is dynamic. I mean, it is not it is not the old model that it used to be. It is changing and it's changing really quickly right now. And so, you know, 10 years from now, we're probably going to look back at this era and be like a lot of the decisions and the experiences and the people like you whether you want to yeah. admit it or not, you're helping, yeah. you're helping shape this thing, yeah. you know, yeah. which, which is cool. And like, that's, I guess what I would love to do is like, rather than, you know, of course I want to ride hard. I want to you know perform, but like creating something that per, like provides an avenue for the next generation of cyclists, because, you know, like it or not, you know, I was speaking to a colleague today about it. Like my generation very much benefited off of Lance Armstrong's performance at the tour. Like there was funding coming to, you know, I raced on Livestrong. You know, I might, I mean, I had my 21st birthday at Lance's house, you know, it's like there was a huge line of like, you know, funding that came into USA Cycling or development teams because Lance was performing. And so opportunities were presented to myself to pursue this, you know, this chance to, you know, kind of achieve my dream and race in the tour. So what can I do? What can, you know, Amity and Pete and all these other athletes, what can we do to then, you know, still race and be, you know, influential, but then have that trickle down to people young in the sport and people who are looking up to us. Um, and, you know, gravel is a great way to, to do that. And who knows, maybe it changes. And, you know, maybe there is a boom of, of road racing in the U.S. I see it being more difficult just because it's so hard to host a road race now. Um, but it's just crazy to see, you know, something like, you know, sitting here now, just all these people on bikes. Like, how cool is that to see that cycling is still strong? Um, and I guess I'm also biased in the sense that I love racing bikes and riding fast. And not everyone wants to do that. People just want to ride and participate. Um so how do you kind of find that balance of, you know, putting resources and opportunities to people who want to race, but also making sure you're being inclusive enough to allow people to just come and ride and be a part of it. And I think, you know, they found a good balance here. And I hope that going forward, these events can kind of keep that balance of, you know, high performance, but also inclusivity and, you know, partic participation, because that is like one of the coolest aspects about these events. For sure. Ian, your sushi's here. I want you to eat it. I want you yes. to have a good lunch. You've been, again, a phenomenal guest here on the uh, Villainies Podcast. Open door policy. You can come back whenever you would like. Happy to, happy to join whenever you need me. All right. Ian Boswell, Unbound Gravel winner, man of freckles, soon-to-be dad, yes. and so many other ways to describe you. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you, Fred. <laughs>